Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's October 19th, 2020. On the baseball calendar, we move to the final week of the 2020 season as we enter the World Series after an exciting American League and National League Championship Series that both went seven games. While the White Sox are not there this season, for Sox fans, it's a different type of celebration this week. It's the start of the 2021 Sox Machine Offseason Plan Project. Yes, it is time for you to act as the Chicago White Sox general manager, making your decisions on SoxMachine.com with your tender, non-tender decisions, possibly re-sign some White Sox free agents, and then time to go shopping at free agency and trades to help improve the roster in 2021, with the goal of finally reaching the postseason in back-to-back seasons for the first time in franchise history. While that caveat is unique, lately this plan has been about rebuilding and trying to trade for prospects, there's a new twist for Sox Machine fans. You need to find a new manager. And can you build a winning ball club on a budget that's between $135 to $150 million? Well, to give you some ideas to ponder about while you make your plan, and joining me now is the Game Master, Managing Editor of SoxMachine.com, and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis, and hello, Jim. It's off-season plan project time, and I have to say, there's a lot of excitement about this year's activity, especially on White Sox Twitter, and I wonder why. Yeah, well, it, it's funny. There, there was uh, a lot of anticipation for the off-season plan project 
I would say like maybe, you know, August, September when they started clinching, uh, you know, where people were just like, all right, we've got to finish this team off. This is, uh, we're basically all the way there. It's uh, uh, right fielder here, uh, DH, one more pitcher. Let, you know, I, I have the ideas. And then there was like a counter wave when people were trying to figure out exactly what the offseason, uh, the, the, the open market is going to look like for agency, trades, whether teams will be able to feel confident about trading their own prospects or acquiring prospects they haven't seen in a year, or uh, you know, what are players going to get, what are non-premier free agents going to get, where I saw some people uh, on Sox Machine say, I'm going to take this year off because I have no idea how to factor in just the pandemic, uh, just you know what it uh, does to the league financially, what it does to systems uh, that could only really develop players at the major league level and maybe, you know, that a little bit at the alternate training sites and then, you know, maybe a little bit with instructional leagues, but it's going to be a complete mystery. And so I think, uh, you know, we really had to open it up a little bit in terms of just what's possible, what the limitations are, just because I think people are going to process. I think there are two different ways of processing how this offseason is going to play out, either by the old paradigm where, uh, you just have to think about numbers the way they were, what the payroll is going to be, and then think maybe the White Sox will get there or everything will work out you know, relative to um, you know, the, the spending adjustments across the board. Or it'll be something like uh, you know, uh, off-season <laughs> architects will want to try to anticipate what uh, special hell the pandemic (laughs) hath wrought for uh, payrolls and trades and everything. So I I can see it going both ways. So I think I had to open up for both possibilities. And and during this episode, you will hear Jim and I be not as certain as we usually are when we're talking about this stuff. But guess who's also uncertain? The general managers, right? Rick Hahn has already hinted at this at his end-of-the-season press conference when he announced that he fired Rick Renteria And Don Cooper, he doesn't really know on how the market's going to shape up. Mike Hill, the president of baseball operations for the Miami Marlins, uh, his contract was not renewed. uh, So the Marlins are going to have a new president of baseball operations. So that's three teams now, Jim, including the Phillies and the Angels. And I don't think the Marlins, Phillies, and Angels are going to go into rebuilding mode, uh, especially Philadelphia and Anaheim. They've spent too much money. Uh, to go into rebuild mode at this point. Uh, But you're going to have new leaders who may have new ideas on how to tackle this. And, uh, you you know, you have teams like Houston that could just let these free agents like Michael Brantley and George Springer walk because the highest paid player on their 2021 roster isn't going to play for them. And that's Justin Verlander because he's going to miss the entire season because of Tommy John surgery. Uh, And they can... uh, you know, because they already have already that much dead weight or dead money on their payroll, they may let other free agents go. Uh, so we could have teams in transition going to next season. This is the first time doing this, especially looking at the entire league gym. Because uh, later in this offseason, Greg Nix, Patrick Nolan, and I will make our feeble attempt on free agent predictions, which did not go well last offseason. So I can't imagine how well it would go this offseason. Uh, but it, it's just going to be, uh, this is the most uncertain I've ever been as far as what this offseason will bring for Major League Baseball. And I guess it's a good place to start is arbitration. Because when it comes to this offseason plan project, that's kind of the first part that you have to figure out to understand exactly how much money 
you have to spend is going through arbitration. And based on what MLB Trade Rumors has posted and what you have included in the offseason plan project, Jim, there's like three scenarios that could go down as far mm-hmm. as with these White Sox players in arbitration. You want to walk through as far as our, for our listeners to understand because they're going to have to pick a direction, either method one, two, or three, and what method they pick will determine how much money they have left in the budget. Yeah, I'll just read it straight from MLB Trade Rumors. There are three methods. Method one, it applies their projection model directly with actual statistics from the 60-game season. So there's no proration, or or there's no extrapolation, rather, uh, from the 60 games to an 162-game scale. Method two, you know, does that. Extrapolates all counting stats to would-be 162-game totals. One home run becomes 2.7 home runs. I did a post about that at the end of the season, um, just calculating what kind of pace like Jose Abreu and other White Sox players were on for 162-game season just to get a better idea of just what exactly they accomplished in a short amount of time. And then the third method, which isn't really clear for the White Sox because most of their players are first-time eligible for arbitration, but uh, method three is for non-first-time eligibles, finds the raise they'd get in a 162-game season, then gives them 37% of that raise. So basically prorates the raise they would have gotten. And that seems to basically be just really mild changes from from one player to another i really haven't seen much in the way of like massive revisions like maybe you know some are a rounding error like up to a million that i've seen but for the white Sox, it really only you know for a couple players and and i'm looking at the list now like nomar mazar is a hundred thousand dollar difference evan marshall's a hundred thousand dollar difference everybody else is is either on track to make what they made with the method one or is a first time eligible and so it matches yeah the, the model is the same as method one I got, I mean, this is, this is again, very intriguing. I think agents for some clients want to go with method two. Let's, let's take these numbers over a 60 game season and put them in a 162 game context. And let's decide there because I think teams, Jim are going to zero in on method one. And Mm -hmm. I, I don't blame them from an accounting standpoint, because they're going to say, hey, we only played 60 games. So why would you want to pay raise over 162 games? You only played 60 games. However, all these conversations we had in the summer, Major League Baseball could have played a lot more than 60 games. They purposely mm-hmm. chose to only play 60 games. So that's where I think a lot of the argument's going to be in arbitration if cases get into arbitration between teams and players is going back to that conversation of, well, who's to blame that we only had a 60-game season? Yeah, and, and service time is extrapolated too. Right. So, like, yeah, that, that's kind of how I look at it, is 60 games counted as a traditional full year of service time. So it's, it would seem to me that, you know, players under the, uh, you know, ar- who are arbitration eligible should be, you know, I guess that same... Uh, methodology or that same just kind of rationale applied to them where 60 games is a full season uh, because there's still you know, a lot of cases being paid under market. I do think that the one catch for agents and players who are uh, stumping for method two, the full, you know, you know, extrapolating the 60 games for 162 games is it seems like it's going to result in a, in a record number of non-tenders. So, oh, yeah. you know, it could be the case where, you know, some players like Lucas Giolito, who, you know, under the first method where he gets a 60 game raise would be uh, $2.5 million in his first arbitration year, you know, going off the 162 game projection, that would be 
5.3 million. So basically more than double his, uh, you know, his method one salary. So for him, you know, his agent saying, you know, I want my player to be making 5.3 million for somebody like say, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the list here, like Ronaldo Lopez. Yeah. None of the other white Sox I think are too severe where it changes, but for like a guy like Ronaldo Lopez, who's making 1.7 million in method one to 2.2 million in, in method two, if he were maybe, you know, just 3.2 million, million instead of one point, uh, or sorry, 3.2 instead of 2.2, the white Sox could say, nah, you know, I'll pass on that one, or maybe I'll try to rework it. And then jettison him into a free agency where, you know, he might be get the Yolmer Sanchez treatment where just it's hard for him to find a major league deal or like teams that are really scrimping or really wanting to uh, just save their money for proven options, uh, you know, starters who are proven to be starter upgrades, even if they're fourth or fifth starters at best, uh, you know, he could be catapulted into that uncertainty. So that's a case where, you know, his agent might be like, oh, you know, maybe a milder increase is better for the short-term security of my clients. So I think the prevailing notion will be, you know, more money for more players, which is method two, but I can see it working, uh, cutting the other way for players who are not so secure. We're not going to go through each of the lists because we don't want to influence you, our listener, before you get into your plan on what you should do. We want you to have the freedom and the creativity on who would you tender or non-tender. But looking at the arbitration eligible players, Jim, let's have the discussion of what, who, which, which of these players are the most difficult to make a decision on. So we'll, I'll start with you. Like when you look at this list of the players that are arbitration eligible, it includes Lucas Giolito, Evan Marshall, Adam Engel, Jace Fry. You mentioned Ronaldo Lopez, Carlos Rodon, and Nomar Mazzara. Those are the arbitration eligible players. Also, Yomer Sanchez. Can't forget about Yomer. Um, out of all these players, which is the toughest decision to make as far as non-tender or tender, in your opinion? Well, uh, shout out to Michael Kenny. He set up the, uh, back in Southside Sox, he would set up these beautiful spreadsheets for us that did automatic tabulation. And so he set one up for me uh, to fill in for, for this year. So I'll be able to stay on top of it better uh, than last year and be able to tabulate it as a go. But, uh, you know, one of the columns has the numbers for, um, you know, how many people made this decision. Like when it comes to binary decisions, like uh, uh, are, are eligible players tender, non-tender for club options, pick up or decline? You know, it, we, we see this tally in a column. And I'm really curious to see what the column shows for Lopez. I think he's going to be the, you know, with Mazar and Rodan, I think those decisions are fairly, yeah, I, I, I have a sense of where they're going to go. But Lopez, I think, when it comes to his salary, you know, if it's 2.2 million at most, or you know, at least that projection at most, maybe it goes a bit over. I can see, you know, some people saying, well, you know, it's, that's too little to give up on him right now. I'll give him one more year. I can see a bunch of people saying, done with him. You know, trade him, get rid of him, cut him. Just, you know, there's, there's no point. Uh, the White Sox are more serious than this. So uh, let's move on. So that's the one I think is going to be uh, the number that's going to be in the middle where, uh, you know, it's going to be, uh, the, the column's going to be saying either, you know, 90% to 100% or 0% to 10%. This one, I think, could be hovering in like the 60% range, which I think is always the most interesting interesting decision. The ones where that were just like, there's a majority, but not... Or maybe there's a plurality, but not a majority. Or maybe there's a majority, but barely. And that shows the lack of confidence where I think... Uh, uh, that's where the most interesting decisions happen. I'm with you on Ronaldo Lopez. That was the toughest one for me. 
The other arbitration eligible player conversation that you, the listener, and for those that are going to be participating in this offseason plan project, I think you need to think about is Lucas Giolito. Now Lucas Giolito is entering arbitration, Jim. So the White Sox are not paying him league minimum anymore. He's going to start getting expensive. This is typically the time where we see teams work out a contract, especially with pitchers, to buy out the arbitration years. So you, it helps with future planning and also attempt to grab some of those free agent years. Is this the time that the White Sox work out a contract extension with Lucas Giolito? I would say no. I think there's mutual interest and mutual respect, but when you look at Giolito's career arc and when you look at the fact that he's had Tommy John surgery once already and that, you know, even going back to his draft day with the Nationals, that he had a very firm idea of what his value was, even if he was going to have Tommy John surgery right after the draft, basically. He had a firm idea of how much he was willing to slide or how much he was willing to take before just deciding to bypass it. And he got a you know pretty good deal from the Nationals, even though he needed to go undergo surgery right away. So, you know, given his background, given that he does come from a you know, pretty well-off situation, uh, to where you know he's he's not under the pressure that some players are signing that that big guaranteed payday, I can see him stringing along a little bit, maybe being the guy who strings along more, just because you know given the circumstances, and uh, you know just maybe teams not willing to be as generous as they. Uh, as the track they were on to, you know, keep setting records with uh, with these kind of extensions that I could see maybe the White Sox not presenting a number that he finds compelling enough to sign. Hmm. Got it. So it's more on the White Sox not making a good enough offer to entice him. Yeah, and I can see the offer being good. I can just see him being confident or just you know, having a firm idea of what he wants and maybe the White Sox just not getting there, maybe willing to see. you know, And that's a case, too, where maybe... If uh, the arbitration system is skewed towards the method one, the lower number, then maybe that's something that he realizes like, well, you know, going through the next few years, I'm not sure how this is going to affect my arbitration number. If I find a, an extension that fairly rewards me for the final two arbitration years, more than maybe this uh, revised system or, or altered or compromised system will, uh, maybe that's one thing that will maybe change the mental math for him a little bit. But just based on the correspondence, the the rumors, it seems like, uh, uh, or or just you know when when the question comes up and how beat reporters talk about it, seems like uh, I'm I'm willing to say like not not rule it out, but maybe say like uh, hmm. two out of three chance that it I, won't I happen. I think it's this a good year. time though. I think it's a good time for both parties to try to work something out because you have the collective bargain agreement expiring after this season. So who knows, right? Like we don't know what the rules are going to be for next year and beyond. Mm-hmm. Neither party really does. So I wonder that that's kind of where I'm coming from. So spoiler alerts, my off-season plan project comes out Tuesday morning. I have a Lucas Gilito contract extension in my off-season plan. Um and I'm wondering on when it comes to Gilito on how many off-season plan projects are kind of following my train of thought as well, Jim, on, okay, it's time to extend Giolito. What it, what would an extension look like? And I'm I'm curious to see when uh, will we have all these plans together and what is like the, the average length of the extension and the average amount of dollars tied uh, to Lucas Giolito. Mm-hmm. 
So I I don't think they can get Giolito for cheap. Like this is not one of those yeah. Jose Quintana type of yep. deals. Yeah, no that's, way. That's where I'm coming uh, from. <laughs> and when we've seen the White Sox be generous with position players, but I wonder if their their math changes with pitchers and just being that one pitcher, one one game can alter the rest of the yeah, contract. Absolutely. I mean that's that's kind of where it's at though with pitchers these days. It's you look at the money Garrett Cole got. Shoot, you get you look at the money that Zach Wheeler got. Okay. But man, if your elbow blows, there goes your value. It, it really depends on when you get hurt. I mean, look at Carlos Rodon. You know, we're talking about tender, non-tender. I think three years ago, Carlos Rodon doesn't even even think about an extension. Why? Because I'm going to become a free agent uh, after the 2021 season. Mm-hmm. Scott Boris is my agent, and if I pitch well enough, I'm going to make bank. Now what? You know, I, I don't know who's going to take you on, but they're not going to probably pay you four and a half million dollars in which that's your arbitration projection at this moment. Uh, yeah. And I don't know what Rodon's future earnings is going to be in his career. It's been greatly impacted with the shoulder surgery and Tommy John. So that that's, I'm with you that on the pitchers, it is risky for both parties, but I do think that this is a good time for both the White Sox and Giolito to work something out. Yeah, thinking about it a little bit more, um, yeah, I can see the the math swinging both ways. If Giolito gets a you know method one type arbitration number, two point five million, I can't see him saying, "Well, that's going to screw up the rest of my arb curve." Maybe uh, the White Sox will have a number that beats that or comes close to matching that. It's always a little bit lower than the max arbitration number because it doesn't make sense for teams to offer it otherwise, but. You know, maybe, you know, he and his representation realized like, okay, maybe it's not going to line up. But on the other hand, you know, if it is method two and he gets 5.3 million and, you know, puts him on pace for like, say, maybe 10 million next year and uh, 10 million the following year. And then, you know, maybe upwards of, uh, you know, 16, 20 million the fo- yeah, for his final arbitration year that maybe that uh, inspires the White Sox enough to be like, let's try to get yeah. out ahead of this one more time. So I can see you know, the, the the logic cutting both ways, but just based on um, you know his background in negotiating his deals so far, and uh, the White Sox you know haven't shown that willingness to offer like a an extension that isn't a uh, no brainer. Like, I think this would be a little bit of a brainer. Like even then, like you, when you look at like Luis Robert, that was a little bit of a brainer, but so far it looks like a no brainer. So, you know, I I think we always see these numbers like, Whoa, this is a lot of money. And then most cases, it doesn't look like a lot of money by the end of it. So, uh, it just happens that with, you know, with pitchers, especially a guy who's already had Tommy John surgery once the second Tommy John surgery is always a much bigger consideration for what a player can provide going after that. And for pitchers that have been in that situation, you're hoping that your situation turns out to be like Jordan Zimmerman's. I mean, Jordan Zimmerman has had a good major league baseball career, but after he got hurt a second time, he's obviously not very good, but Hey, he got paid Jim. And for yep. a guy from small town, Wisconsin, who went to a division three college uh, to make a hundred plus million in his career is outstanding. So that's, from a player perspective, that is your goal is to obviously try to get that financial security for you, especially as a pitcher. But it's got to be worthwhile because, man, starting pitching is not cheap. And we're going to get to that when we get to the free agents <laughs> and talk about as far as budget. 
Yeah. Uh, sorry, you, you brought to mind John Dinks, who, you know, kind of similar, knew his value held out uh, on, on signing the extension that Gavin Floyd signed. And that turned out to benefit him handsomely. Like, you know, Floyd was underpaid for his career and the White Sox were able to, to uh, decide to uh, let him go, you know, after his surgery, never quite got back on track. And so the White Sox got his best years and didn't have to pay for anything afterwards for Dinks. Uh, you know, he got paid, uh, he, you know, maximized his arbitration values until he signed his extension. And then, uh, you know, it's a good thing he signed his extension because, uh, he had shoulder surgery and wasn't quite the same afterwards. So, uh, I could see Giolito maybe doing a similar thing to where he maybe goes two years into ARB or maybe, you know, signs that extension like the year before he hits free agency. So he gets a pretty good deal. Like, you know, kind of like Chris Sale did. Uh, where he signs the de- deal right before, uh, you know, where he, the number is just like too big to ignore and saying like, it's not worth holding out for much more than this because this is already uh, future generations money <laughs> that I don't have to worry about. But in both those cases, those are reasons, uh, you know, the, the, the teams don't really, aren't really celebrating their decisions to sign those contracts. So uh, yeah, it'll be, a fascinating discussion. That's one thing, yeah, as, as you mentioned, it'll be fun to see whether our off-season architects look to pursue a deal, what it's worth, and uh, how many people think something like that is feasible. Yeah, so when you're doing your tender, non-tender, make sure you declare which method that you're going to roll with. I'm going to roll with method two because I think that's what it's ultimately going to be closer to. I think that the agents and the players can successfully negotiate in front of the arbitration court if it ever gets to that ever gets that far uh, as far as the negotiations to get the higher total because it is a big difference for Lucas Giolito. It's like a three million dollar difference, Jim, between method one and method two. If my math is right, it's like two point three. No, it's two point yes, five yeah. million. For 2.8. That's that's the difference. Yeah, so $2.8 million difference. So make sure you declare which method that you're going with. Some of you are going to say method one because it's less money uh, and you'll have more money to spend in free agency, but I'm going with method two for my off-season plan. Okay, so that's the tender, non-tender side. Uh, but before you get into free agents and trades, you still need to figure out the final amount of money that you'll have. And that's the pending free agents. And the White Sox have three pending free agents. You have Alex Colome, James McCann, and Gerard Dyson. I don't think the White Sox are going to bring back Gerard Dyson. So that one is simple. What's not simple is the conversation regarding Alex Colome and James McCann. And, Jay- and Jim, there is a lot of White Sox fans right now, especially on social media, trying to campaign and say the White Sox should bring back Colome and McCann because they've been very useful and they have been good for the White Sox, especially this season. My concern is that based on whatever budget that you're playing with, and we'll get to that in a moment, that you have to look at the White Sox roster and ask yourself, is closer and backup catcher the last two roster holes that you need to fill in? Because if you believe so, sure, go ahead and give Colome twelve plus million, because I think that's what he'll get in an open market. And go ahead and sign James McCann to that three-year, $30 million contract and outbid the other teams who will want him to be their starting catcher. But for me, no. The White Sox have other roster holes that they'll need their money, Colome and McCann's money, or projected money, to go spend to fill those other holes. 
How do you feel about the chances of Alex Colomay and James McCann returning to the White Sox in 2021 and beyond on a new deal from the White Sox? Well, based on what Rick Hahn said at his uh, end of season or, or you know, <laughs> end of Rick Renteria uh, media conference, it sounds like that he's inclined or expecting that McCann's going to want to see whether he can get a uh, a number one starting catching job, which the White Sox don't seem willing to afford. Like, I still think he would be in the glorified backup role where he catches, uh, you know, maybe 60 games and DHs 40 more or something like that. But if he wants the uh, the starting job and the payday to go along with it, then it seems like it's worth, yeah, given that he's never hit free agency, it's his right to explore the market. And Han seems like he's preparing for that. Um, I think, yeah, I've mentioned this before, but I think Colome is going, he might be somebody who, yeah, maybe the White Sox bring him back only because I can see him finding lackluster prices all the way around. So it's not like the White Sox offer him a qualifying offer, but maybe they kind of treat it like a qualifying offer and that they, you know, if you send him for one year, um, you know, just because like I'm looking at like a guy like Mark Melanson, who uh, wasn't really, you know, effective closer, wasn't really a peripheral monster though. And then like when his early thirties came along, the, uh, you know, injuries caught up with him, had a, a couple partial seasons. Uh, the ERA was like more ordinary. Uh, the save totals dropped. And then, you know, he just got, uh, you know, traded to Atlanta at the end of his run with the Giants and just really was unsatisfactory. And I'm wondering, like a guy like Colome, who's, you know, velocity is an elite and doesn't miss a ton of bats and gets by with weak contact. You know, that, it, it worked with the White Sox. Like there's no... You, you can maybe complain about, you know, watching Colomay pitch because he works slowly, but when it comes to his effectiveness, what he did was what he did. <laughs> he, uh, he really couldn't have done much better, even with, like, sterling uh, velocity and strikeout rates and walk rates and everything like that. Like, his he he closed games. <laughs> That's what he was signed to do or traded to. Uh, uh, they, they acquired him to close games, and he did that. But I can see, like, him being not all that impressive to other teams, to where like he says, yeah, I'll sign up for one more for like a you know a raise, like a twelve million dollar contract. Like I don't think it'll be that low or or that stark, but I can't see you know should uh, should belts tighten in free agency and only like the cream of the crop get the the, the full contracts. I can see Colome being in that second or third tier of free agent to where you know teams don't want to go all out for him and maybe his price comes down to where where it's like you know, applicable and, uh, the White Sox like it and are willing to sign it because the rest of their bullpen is pretty much cheap. So that's one case where I can see you know, the White Sox wanting to, uh, invest in one quality veteran reliever and maybe Colome is still that guy. I think there's a chance that both Alex Colome and James Buchanan are playing for the Philadelphia Phillies next year. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if he fits both their needs, depending on what happens with real Muto. Right. Uh, how do you feel about the qualifying offer being increased to $18.9 million? I mean, that is a lofty number, Jim. And uh, obviously, I think some of the, the, you know, the marquee free agents like Real Muto will decline. Uh, I'm sure he'll be offered. Uh, so in case, you know, the, the, the Phillies can hedge, right? In case if Real Muto does sign elsewhere, they can get some type of compensation back. Uh, but how do you feel about that number? Because this number is starting to grow. And, uh, you know, in a couple of years, it, it could hit $20 million, And that would be a game changer on who gets slapped with a qualifying offer and, and who doesn't. Well, on one hand, it's healthy to see it grow uh, just because it had stalled out for a little bit for a couple of years. 
to where, you know, it reflected that the top players weren't being paid as much or the average annual value was slipping, payrolls were uh, stalling a little bit. And so, uh, you know, that kind of reflected that teams weren't as willing to hand those big free agent contracts out that that players really enjoyed signing and kind of, you know, made plans around. So I, I think it's ultimately healthy that the number's going up. And uh, yeah, I think teams are going to have to be maybe a little bit more judicious about handing it out because we did see more players accepting it because free agency had become uh, a harsher climate for players with draft pick compensation attached who, uh, like Mike Moustakis and such, that just had that number uh, or had the draft pick compensation around their neck and they had to just kind of settle for unimpressive consolation offers until they could finally shed that... uh, uh, you know, they can't be offered the qualifying offer twice. So by the second time they, they went back in, it was healthier. They just had to hope that they're in better position to find that kind of deal. But I think the players who, uh, the fringe players who accept it or get offered it are going to accept it uh, even more so than last year. So I think teams might have to be a little bit more discriminating in how they offer it uh, if they really don't want to uh, acquire that player. Because I think even trading that kind of salary might be tough this year, depending on how much payrolls tighten if they tighten at all. No, that's a good point. So there you go. So we went through the tender, non-tender, pending free agents. You're going to have to think of a number. If you do want to bring back Alex Colomay and James McCann, you're going to have to come up with an offer. For those that are wanting to bring back McCann, you're going to have to pay him starting money. You you will have to pay him starting catcher money. And I think a what would be a good average annual value, Jim? Ten million is that now the market for primary catcher? I think so. Like I'm thinking of like Jason Castro, three years and twenty four million, uh, when he signed with the Twins, and so I would think that go up a little bit. So yeah, something more around eight to ten, maybe eleven, twelve, somewhere in that range. Yeah, I, the years is good too. I, I agree with you. It's got to be three plus years. So if, if you want to bring back McCann. I keep going back to the number three years, 30 million, but yeah, three years, 24 million, I think should be the floor. And then maybe up to three years, 30 million uh, to bring back James McCann, uh, which would be great. It's just, again, do the white Sox pay premium money for a backup? Not intentionally, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that, that that's what you're going to have to think about as far as who these pending free agents to bring back Alex Colomay and James McCann. Okay, so after you go through your tender and your non-tender and the pending free agents, you have a good understanding of where you sit before you go start looking for free agents and trades. And oh, the- we actually have the club options, or did you look at Encarnacion and Gonzalez and say, nah? Oh, yeah. Uh, I skipped those because, yeah, those are automatic. Well, Encarnacion <laughs> got a signing bonus, so there's no club option for Edwin Encarnacion. Well, he's got a club option, no buyout. No buyout. That's correct. Uh, so, yeah, Encarnacion's yeah. a no. I'm glad you mentioned that because I did forget about it. I do want to talk about Gio Gonzalez, I think, is easy. No. Uh, I just think his injuries, it's just not worth it. Pay him. Yeah, not for $7 yeah, million. $500,000 is the buyout. So, remember, you have to, you have to add $500,000 to your budget, guys, uh, if you're not bringing back Gio Gonzalez. Lurie Garcia. Let's have a conversation about Lurie Garcia because I think, didn't we get a fan question about the toughest thing about off-season plans? Yep. Let me find the exact wording of that. It was from Ed Casey who asked, as you both prepare your off-season plans, what was the toughest part of your plan 
uh, for each to figure out. Lurie Garcia was the toughest one for me. I know it's cheap. I know it's three and a half million dollars, but it's the injury history now, Jim. Like, and it, for me, when I was going after my targets, because I'm going after some big fish targets in my off season plan. If you're operating with 135 or even 150 million dollar, you know, budget, and depending on the guys that you want to target. You need almost every single penny that you can squeeze out of that budget to to sign multiple big target guys or big ticket guys. And where can you get that from? Well, for me, if you like Adam Engel as your fourth outfielder, and if you think Danny Mendick does an all right job as a utility infielder, well, there's three and a half million dollars that you can save because the buyout is only 250,000 for Louis Garcia. And let's face it, how many games are you going to get out of Lurie Garcia in 2021? Because he does get banged up and the injury history is alarming and it's hard to trust that he could stay healthy. He was the most difficult part, Jim, because I think he is a good player and it'd be great for him to stay. But for me, I ended up buying him out and making Lurie Garcia free agent because I needed his $3.5 million to make my plan work. <laughs> like, you know, he homered from both sides of the plate. That was the thing that jumped out to me. It's like, where did that come from? Like, you know, his power kind of evaporated, uh, you know, between his breakout in 2017. Like, it kind of became just an ordinary kind of uh, fourth outfielder, utility infielder power. But then that came busting out again, 441 slugging and just thinking like, if that if that had a chance of hanging around a little bit more, then I can see 3.5 million being... Valid, but also, you know, like as you mentioned, uh, you know, you can cover his utility when it comes to Adam Angle and Danny Mendick. Also, like, you know, just rolling around, uh, you know, the kind of uncertainty, you know, with the White Sox carrying 28 players instead of 26, you know, you don't exactly know what the roster is going to look like, um, next year, just when it comes to, um, what the situation is, whether there's a vaccine, whether travel is still limited, you know, whether they kind of maybe uh, front load the schedule with um, lesser travel and, and try to have some safety measures built in to, um, you know, not expose players or have more players available just in case there's residual effects from last season to this one. And, and, you know, if they do somehow carry some of these roster features and you have 28 guys or uh, even 26, you know, maybe 26 is enough, but you can have enough guys on the bench to cover all of Larry's versatility. Like, you know, the, the strength in Garcia is that like he can fill in for a week at center field and he can fill in for a week at shortstop. Uh, you know, that's a valuable thing to have. And when Tim Anderson pulled his groin, Garcia did a great job filling in there. Uh, you know, had some big hits and a nice week at the plate. And it's hard to get that from another player, even like Danny Mendick, who is decent second. Like, you know, I would count more on Garcia than Mendick for a good week or two filling in for a guy. But, you know, is that worth... 3.5 million. If you can't find that money anywhere else to sign a guy that's better, I agree with you. Like I've, I've rolled around this discussion before um, about Garcia's ARB number. I think he signed, you know, the one thing that jumps out to me is I think the White Sox, he and the White Sox agreed to that number or they agreed to that um, contract extension he signed just to avoid uh, this, the situation that ha- happened to Yomer Sanchez, where his arbitration number just inflated beyond what he could offer. I think, you know, he and the White Sox agreed to this extension because it keeps his number down to where he's still affordable or still, you know, easily worth it, you know, on a team that could use him. 
I just wonder if that just preordains it to where the White Sox are going to bring him back because they kept his number at that number for that reason. That's a good point. Yeah, it's one of those where I would not bring him back, but I expect Louis Garcia to be back. And and that's yeah. and that's what's going to happen during this offseason plan project. Obviously, we're not always going to agree with the White Sox front office direction on where they go for some of these decisions, but with with Lurie Garcia, I needed the money based on who I was targeting. But I, yeah. I'm with you, Jim, that they agreed to this deal, and I do expect Lurie Garcia to be back. Let me throw one more variable in here is that, yeah, I know Garcia was a favorite of Rick Renteria. <laughs> now the Renteria is not there. Does that change anything? Mm, that's a good question. I do not know. Yeah, me neither. Just <laughs> this is unfamiliar territory with the White Sox waiting to actually find a manager. Speaking of manager, so we so we did not segue. Yeah, segue. We did the we did the tender, not tender. We did pending free agents, and you reminded me about the club options. A new wrinkle in this offseason plan project is that those who do fill this out have to find a new manager. You have to select a new manager and also pitching coach, which is which is pretty tough uh, if you don't know much about as far as pitching coaches or who is available around the league. And uh, I said on the last episode we did, I did not want to talk more than two minutes about Tony La Russa as the possible White Sox manager, or I would have an aneurysm. And sure enough, I was starting to get a migraine last week. Uh, more frequently, Jim, as, as more and more of this news came up regarding as far as Tony La Russa being the possible manager of the Chicago White Sox. We, we thought this was in favor, doing a favor for Jerry Reinsdorf, but there's a lot of smoke here. There's way too much smoke for my comfort. What's going on here? I still think it's a favor for Jerry Reinsdorf, maybe an opportunity to provide him closure. Just based on decades of realizing like he made a wrong decision or he listened to the wrong guy when it comes to La Russa. And it seems like, you know, if your boss asks you to do something, you do it. Um, uh, but yeah, it strikes me less as, uh, you know, when we talked about before, I thought it was like a way for him to flatter a friend through the media and maybe, you know, maybe uh, generate some interest for him elsewhere. But now I think it's maybe just like the closure aspect, just wanting to do it because he screwed it up before and this will allow him to cross it off his list and say like, well, I tried. Uh, time has passed. Uh, I let my GM and, and team president sign uh, somebody else. Uh, but at least I can call it the end of an era. Okay. So I don't expect a lot of offseason plans to have Tony La Russa as the next White Sox manager. It'll be interesting to hear the arguments for Tony La Russa if you do select him to be the next White Sox manager. But I'm also interested to see how many people pick A.J. Hinge to be the next White Sox manager or Alex Cora or come up with another idea, a, a third-party candidate uh, to be the next White Sox manager that uh, we're really not discussing. It'll be really interesting to see in what direction everybody goes with their offseason plans for the manager uh, and also as far as the pitching coach. Uh, for the Chicago White Sox. So again, we, we went through the tender, non-tender, the club options, the pending free agents, and the manager search and pitching coach. Now that you've gone through that, now it's time to look at trades and free agents. But the budget, which is part of the fun of the game and what will increase or decrease the level of difficulty depending on how you play, 
I, I like the soft cap that you came up with, Jim, at $135 million because the White Sox were walking into the 2020 season with a $128 million payroll. So to have $7 million increase with a season of having no fans, so losing out on all those revenues for game day operations, uh, would give the White Sox an opportunity to say that they are increasing payroll but not in a very large amount, but probably more significant than what other teams are doing. When I went through my offseason plan, by the time I got to this stage, I was at $100 million, so I had $35 million to spend uh, with the playing with the soft cap. So for those that are listening, wondering, how did you get to that number, 135? Would you like to share some insight on what your thoughts are with the soft payroll cap and what ultimately do you think the top end of the payroll limitation will be? Yeah, this is my answer to Ed's question about the toughest part of the offseason plan project is figuring out what the damn payroll is. Uh, yeah, $135 million is, it strikes me as, you know, kind of philosophically as satisfying as it gets. And I, I say soft payroll cap because there are ways to calculate it. Like if, uh, I guess to, to say like, you know, it's soft cap because I said like, if you want to expand it to $150 million because that's just the way you process free agent value, like you, you have a hard time processing it or you don't find it fun to try to speculate on what players will get or, or what players will uh, you know, have to accept because of COVID or what you know, teams will frame as uh, COVID related crunches and you feel kind of, you know, not great about doing that either unsure or just maybe morally, uh, in, in morally unclear territory by saying, uh, that players should accept a 20 million contract when they really could get $50 million in a pre COVID world. So I can see it, you know, being both ways, like saying, I want to operate as though COVID hasn't really happened and it's $150 million payroll. I think that's fine because really the, the purpose of the, off-season plan project is just generating ideas and names and numbers and just, you know, you're not having like a, an airtight plan every single one of them, but just saying like, oh, that's a good idea. Like, oh, you you dug into somebody's depth chart and found this guy. Uh, that's, you know, that's compelling. Or, you know, I, I'm making case for this free agent because this is how we can, you know, maybe it's more than the White Sox have ever spent, but this is how they can build a roster around him. Like that's really the value in this. So like, if you want to spend $150 million, that's fine. But I think for the payroll, because last year I said at 120 million, they, they spent 128. And so I feel that's pretty good, especially when you count the dead money that the White Sox had in the, the roster at the end of the year, 120 million got the job done for that year. But 135, it does allow the White Sox to say they increased payroll. It does, you know, I'm guessing based on where teams are going and what they might be willing to spend that, it will be a greater uh, increase year over year in payroll than most other teams, like the median increase. So I think they can point to that. And also, I think, you know, whether it's because, um, you know, they've spent wisely or whether it's because they did like a Milwaukee Brewers thing and were able to uh, sign nice players in February, they should be able to accommodate the kind of player that gets them to like an $150 million looking payroll, even at $135 million. So that's kind of where I'm getting at. They should be make, able to make that kind of either premier free agent acquisition or a number of very nice ones that allow them to get the payroll up that high one way or another. So that's why I put a soft cap, but also said like, I'm not going to, yeah, I, I don't really want, you know, if people don't feel comfortable trying to say like, well, I think we can you know, like use the pandemic as an excuse 
to just hammer down on this guy until he accepts a number that's like 40% of what he's worth. Like, I, I, I think that's kind of a sad exercise. So if you really just want to think of it in terms of a pre-COVID world, I'm fine with that because it's really just a matter of, you know, having fun with it. And if uh, that's the way you have fun, cool. For my plan on Tuesday, I actually, in my plan, will list, this is what I think you can do with a $135 million budget. And this is what you can do with a $150 million budget. It's very similar, except the solution in right field. Mm. And uh, I, I'm really interested to see on, uh, on how everybody handles this. I think it's worthwhile to do both. For those that are listening right now that are just getting started, do one with a $135 million payroll and, and really use that as a hard cap. So you'll have like, if you're following along and, you know, if you use method two, like I did, you'll have $35 million to spend, which let's be honest, as White Sox fans going through this offseason plan project, that's a lot of money uh, for the White Sox. Obviously not on the same level as like what the Cubs and Red Sox and Dodgers and Yankees get to spend. Um, but for the White Sox, that, that's that's quite a bit. And you can you can do some really interesting things with the $35 million that you have freed up. But obviously, going with the $150 million payroll, when you got $50 million to work with, well, you could do some pretty exciting things for the White Sox. And uh, I, I think $150 million payroll going to 2021, Jim, will still not put the White Sox in the top 10. Uh, in Major League Baseball, with the, with the pro-rated salaries for the 2020 season, the White Sox payroll ranked 20th mm-hmm. in Major League Baseball. So they got some work to do just to have an average payroll. And I do wonder with the amount of payroll shedding that we could see this offseason, if $135 million gets them closer to league average, it still might be slightly below league average. But even if you go up to the $150 million, they're still not a top 10 payroll. Yeah. Yeah, I think if it were a normal season with the White Sox drawing like maybe, you know, maybe closer to two million uh, fans, usually the 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 attendance bump happens the year after something exciting happens. Uh, So I would say like this year I could see them drawing like one point nine million fans and getting good TV ratings into the White Sox feel like, okay, this is time to pounce. And I think if they were doing the time to pounce payroll, they'd be doing like one hundred sixty million with full fans and everything like that. But with it being like, you know, um, you know, uncertain in terms of how, what they can expect in terms of uh, gate revenue and such that I think $150 million is kind of like feels more reasonable for the upward amount. I, I do think it's, you know, as you mentioned, it's more real to talk about it in terms of 135 million, but I do like the idea of like having like a flex option, like say like right field, here's, here's my $135 million guy. Here's my $150 million guy. You know, they might be different or you know, starting pitcher. Yeah. Like I can see like, most of the roster being the same, but if you have like a, here's what I do if I, if this is the deal, here's what I do if, if the White Sox are really going for it, you know, and, and having that flex both ways, that, that seems like a, a decent, uh, you know, option for, um, you know, not limiting yourself in terms of if you feel like you really don't know and, and, uh, really just feel like it's not as much fun having to pick one, uh, the lesser one, then it kind of uh, just opens up more ideas in case the White Sox really are going for it and are going to, their payroll number is going to reflect more of that like uh, number we expected if it were full fan capacity. Again, we're not trying to influence your guys' creativity or ideas for the off-season plan project. This is what makes it fun to see all the new different types of methods and new targets that people bring to the table that 
oftentimes Jim and I don't even think about. Be like, oh yeah, that's actually a really good idea. That that is really intriguing. But I think for trades and free agents on, on the trade front, Jim, this has been a topic that I had difficulty as far as trying to answer on how to handle it. And ultimately, spoiler alert, I did not make any trades in my offseason plan because for the White Sox, not having the minor leagues, that's a tough sell to other teams on you know how much development there was for their players in Schaumburg. But the White Sox also didn't share their data with other teams from Schaumburg. Mm-hmm. So if I'm another team, like how am I supposed to trust you on what and how much a player developed in 2020 without a minor league season and you're not sharing information from Schaumburg. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the one reason I'm inclined to say like, uh, I guess I was skeptical of the trade deadline being all that active because of teams not getting good looks, in-person looks, maybe not getting data, not trusting, um, you know, teams or just not, not trusting teams enough to trade, a player they um, they value to one degree or another, but I was wrong about that. So I'm thinking like, eh, you know, even if the, I don't think the White Sox will do much, I I I'm humbled by my previous wrongness to say that uh, uh, you know trades won't be made. But I'm I'm anticipating free agency being enough, and maybe like if there are a record number of non-tenders, the White Sox getting it on it that way, trying to make like marginal upgrades that maybe they've been eyeing a guy for a while and he becomes available for. A pittance, and then they go that way. And sometimes that works, a lot of times it doesn't, but that might be a way to turn over roster spots without trades. And for free agents, I, I think for me, watching this postseason, I am intrigued on how many people are swayed with watching this postseason, if it changes their thoughts about as far as specific players that they would like the White Sox to sign, or types of players they would like the White Sox to sign. Has, has this postseason, especially in how it's unfolded in 2020, Jim, swayed you in any way on how you want Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams to build this roster for 2021 if indeed the goal is is to go deeper into the postseason? Well, I think part of it is the manager change, which is you know having a, a manager who can improvise when there aren't a lack of starting options or when there is a lack of starting options and you don't feel great about any one guy handling five innings. And I think the manager will address that, uh, you know, hopefully. <laughs> um, the other thing would be that uh, just the White Sox being exploitable uh, by good right-handed pitching and having the ability to mix and match a bit more. I think the White Sox, you know, maybe with the Nomar Mazzara, you know, non-starter of a season, you know, maybe that was the the one blow to their uh, roster they couldn't afford. But I think just being able to have more uh, diversity in their lineup, which they've had, uh, yeah, I think Madrigal offers some of that with his ability to put bat to ball. I think Grandal offers that with his patience. They did a lot last year to get uh, more variety in their lineup and more ways of doing damage. And I think balance is going to be the next big thing in order to have more either platoons or just more ways to move guys up and move guys down based on what hand the pitcher is throwing with. Well, you guys had questions for us. So hopefully we we did a good job as far as setting the table for this 2021 offseason plan project. We're really excited to see everyone's plans. And for next week's podcast, I'll be reaching out to you 
uh, for those that make some really interesting decisions, you know, great trade ideas or free agent targets or maybe contract extensions. If you catch my eye with your offseason plans uh, for this upcoming week, I will be reaching out to you, asking you to be on the podcast to share your ideas as far as uh, what the White Sox could do this offseason. That will be for next week's podcast. So for all those that are interested to be on this show to share your unique ideas, uh, try to get those offseason plan projects in uh, as soon as possible. For those that don't want to, take your time. This has taken me more than a week to think about as far as like getting mine together. So I can understand for those that can't, you know, quickly turn around and uh, get something done immediately. Uh, but that's what we'll talk about more next week is the unique ideas that come out of this off season plan project. But you guys had questions for us. So let's start answering those next after a quick break from our sponsors in PO socks. Me, 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 but also you, the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous walrus, the bulbous walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Spring is calling, and Target's ready with deals for your outdoor space. Grab miracle Grow Potting Mix, on sale at two for $8. Plus, get 20% off planters and more. Find spring's best outdoor buys at Target, where low prices and great deals make it easy to save. Restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Socks Machine or helping support SocksMachine.com by becoming a friend of the show and the site at Patreon.com slash Socks Machine, which is where we got all of our P.O. Socks questions this week. So thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. And here to answer your questions again, of course, is Jim. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from Chef Eric. And Chef Eric is asking, how is the new collective bargain agreement shaping up for Major League Baseball and for the Players Association, especially after the fight regarding this COVID season and the huge amount of uncertainty regarding revenue for the 2021 season? I think the CBA fight has taken a back burner to everything else, just getting the 2020 season off the ground and all the way through and all the protocols they had to introduce and then tweak after the Marlins and Cardinals outbreaks happened. And then the expanded postseason and trying to figure out you know, just alternate sites, bubbles, you know, all that stuff. So uh, I would say there's some good news in there and that the team and you know, or the league and the players union has they've had to cooperate they've had to you know be adults and get through uh you know a very you know unprecedented circumstances and they did so you know i think pretty responsibly i think you know by and large the season was a success and they've uh, they got past the outbreaks they 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 tightened things up they've gotten to the postseason uh with bubble sites and now uh, they're getting to the world series with one uh even though fans are introduced i still think it's a little bit weird but by and large, that's, uh, you know, I think a sign that it's not a completely dysfunctional relationship between the two. I think the problem is 
that when you have a, uh, uh, you know, you have this situation in the postseason where the players don't get gate uh, a share of the gate revenue because there is no gate, <laughs> or maybe a very small one now in Texas, uh, that's, you know, they've had to accept a smaller amount of money, but now you get these TV deals, these, uh, you know, new extensions with, uh, their broadcast partners that introduce so much money and the white and, and, and the teams and the players don't really get all that much of a share of it right now. And, you know, that's going to be a sticking point as they, as teams get into the off season, as they cry poor, or, you know, some of them cry poor and say they don't have much to spend when you have the announced, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that are that are coming in each year and and what uh, teams are getting as a share of that so it's going to be i think uh tough for players to buy any poverty claims and i can see uh the league wanting and the teams wanting to try to use that as leverage and try to get the best deal they can on players so I, I think the financial reality of the 2021 season isn't going to be established until probably early 2021, you know, maybe even in February before teams' payrolls really get established. And yeah, because I think the whole idea of how many fans can be in attendance is going to be like a, a week by week proposition, yeah, and maybe state by state, trying to figure out how to handle that. So I think by the time the uh, CBA negotiations really start to kind of come into focus. I think it's going to be probably second half of 2021 where it's really going to be a matter of like, is there going to be a work stoppage after the season? And I think that's going to be probably how they're going to handle it just because given that they already lost a significant amount of money, like players and the league did by having a 60 game season. I don't know if either side's really going to want to have another shortened season. If they can have 162 games, basically be there, uh, all year long fans are not. Those are really good points, Jim on the TV side. So after the Turner deal, which obviously caught a lot of people's attention, major league baseball and ESPN have to negotiate their television deal that expires after the 2021 season. So I'm expecting even more TV money coming another increase in TV money for major league baseball, Jim, which will obviously catch the players association eyes. And uh, for the White Sox, even though they lost the profits, again, yes, they will lose revenue, but this, the, the profit margin is what hurts the White Sox the most. There should be enough TV money to justify them increasing their payroll from $128 million that they had planned for the 2020 season to at least a soft cap that you have set up, Jim, at $135 million. And one can maybe even make the argument that well, this money that you've been pocketing over the years, you should be able to hold a $150 million payroll for the 2021 season. So there's more money to come for the owners in Major League Baseball, and I'm going to keep pointing this out for the next season, Jim. The Pittsburgh Pirates could make $60 million just based on the national television deal because that revenue is shared for all teams. They won't mm-hmm. play a single game on these national television platforms because they won't be good in 2021 and their payroll is going to be less than 60 million. So the national TV money will pay for their payroll. Anything else that they make in money will be gravy. Yeah. I'm sure that'll make other teams happy, but anyway, chef Eric, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Michael. And Michael's asking, without spoiling any offseason plans you may have, do you think any of 
Dylan Cease, Dane Dunning, or Michael Kopech shouldn't be guaranteed a starting rotation spot in 2021. I think if it's a healthy roster, like you know, both healthy in terms of all pitchers are functioning and also just that they're, they've shorted up appropriately, that neither Dane Dunning nor Michael Kopech should be guaranteed rotation spots just because... You know, Kopech hasn't pitched in a couple of years and, you know, who knows exactly, you know, how he's going to look in his first starts against competition that wants to, you know, embarrass him over the course of five innings. I think it makes sense to have him, you know, in a fully functional season with the full minor leagues and a full, you know, complement of developmental options that, you know, he would be able to go to Charlotte or Birmingham or wherever, you know, depending on, you know, what kind of timetable he's on and just, you know, work back into every five day shape uh, against competition that, uh, you know, and especially Charlotte with a small ballpark uh, that can make him look bad once in a while. And then, you know, when he's ready to go, bring him up. I think with Dane Dunning, he did a, an admirable job, uh, admirable job of, um, you know, getting into the rotation and holding his own. You know, he had a couple of uh, stumbles late in the year that, uh, yeah, was the reason why Rick Renteria didn't trust him to get past two outs in game three. But, you know, considering he was rehabbing while facing live major league competition, I think he did as well as you could basically expect. But, you know, if they want to have like the long-term career arc in mind, I can see if there is a full minor league season that they have him go down to the minors and say like, let's let's send you to Charlotte. You've never been there. Get back and do an every five-day thing. You know, just show your command there. Show your ability to suppress homers there to the best of your ability. And then... Once uh, you feel like you've gotten past the dead arm period, which you might have experienced, like that kind of lined up, you know, basically his stumbles lined up where pitchers start to hit a wall, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, early season endurance hurdles that, you know, maybe they want him to handle it there and then maybe they bring him up unless he's just so <laughs> dominant early that he's one of the best five starters. Cease, I think, is the only one that I feel like there's no harm in having him open the season in the rotation just because, you know, there are no physical or developmental harm you can pose by having them in there. You know, it might produce the same disappointing results to where maybe you have to tweak it later, but if he opens the season as the fifth starter with four better options ahead of him, I don't think that'll represent a failure. Again, you did ask not to spoil any off-season plans that you may have, but for a $135 million budget when you only have $35 million to spend and there's some roster holes to plug, I have to think, you know, Two of we can even include Ronaldo Lopez in the mix, depending if you tender or not tender him. Out of these three or four pitchers, I think two of them are going to have to be in the starting rotation, depending on what targets you go after on the starting pitching front. Yeah, it also depends whether they they get another Gio Gonzalez type, like a swingman type. Yeah, that's true. I just I'm I think they will have some. Those. Yeah, I think they they will try to have some fodder, you know, like, you know, in terms of like a, a proven major leaguer, maybe not at the top of his game, but just that don't rely on, you know, that that basically give them the depth to where they don't have to rely on having Dunning or Kopech producing in the first weeks right. of the season. I think they'll try. I do. I do have them bringing in a starting pitcher, but I think you're going to need. I'm with you. Dylan Cease is probably going to be your number four. And then you can have some type of competition for your fifth starting spot. And I'm okay with that. I think it'd be interesting to have that type of competition, spring training, and maybe it'll bring out the best as far as the, the pitching prospects for the White Sox. But Michael, it's an excellent question. Definitely something to think about. I, I think it'd be a terrible idea if the White Sox roll into 2021 
thinking, well, it's going to be Giolito, Keuchel, C. Stunning, and Kopech as our starting rotation. I think that would be a terrible, terrible idea. The White Sox definitely need to add some starting pitching depth. But again, thank you so much for your question, Michael. Our next question comes from Mark Sambor. And Mark's asking a doozy. So this is a a lengthy comment slash, slash question that Mark's got, Jim. And Mark is writing... Using Rick Hahn's own words for firing Rick Renteria, quote, the best candidate or the ideal candidate is going to be someone who has experience with a championship organization and quote, that we are able to have honest questions, uh, honest conversations about where we're at, what we need to do to get better. And quote, we have been insular in our past hirings, end quote. Combined with Han's well-documented failures and identifying major league talent to build around a core, shouldn't Rick Han be replaced with a general manager from outside the organization that has a proven ability to take the White Sox from point B to point C and add the pieces for a championship team? You mean executive of the year, Rick Han? Executive like- <laughs> of the year, Rick Han. Should he be yeah. replaced? Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's a good point. And, and, uh, during his, his media conference, he said something like, I think it was, uh, I couldn't find it in a hurry, but I think it was along the lines of somebody saying like, you know, Don, it was pertinent to Don Cooper and him being in the organization for so long and just saying, you know, whether it came to, um, you know, information such just kind of evolving past, uh, their skill sets. And he said something like, well, you know, in five, 10 years, I, I won't be qualified for the job. And I thought, well, I mean, yeah, that might be sooner than that. Or it might be right now, or you might not have been. Cause like <laughs> the, the thing that uh, came to mind is that, you know, the thing that Han is best at and the thing that, you know, he gets the nod for, you know, with the sporting news executive of the year is that, you know, he's good at, um, you know, locking down or, or coming to a cost certainty with very good, talented young players. But that was something he was also good at before he was a GM. When he was assistant GM to Kenny Williams, like that's what he did for him. Like he was known as the contract guy, uh, the the one who brokered these deals. And so it seems like, you know, he still has, you know, he's getting rewarded as executive of the year for kind of a, an assistant GM skill set. Uh, that's, that's kind of what came to mind for me. And thinking like, well, you know, it's not necessarily, it's a weird thing. It's like a lifetime achievement award, except he hasn't achieved lifetime goal that he set out for himself which is winning a world series winning multiple world series he went so bold as to say that so that's why it was strange i mean he had a good year i think it was a good winter for him um you know by and large he had some misses but ultimately like it was progress you know he hit with a couple of big free agents set a record with free agent spending um so it was he did the things he needed to do for at least one year and you know he bought himself some some benefit of the doubt uh and, and you know, that's all well and good, but yeah, the executive of the year seemed premature and seems like something that could boomerang around and be the case like, Oh, uh, you know, kind of like when, uh, uh, yeah, with, uh, I think it was Obama won the Nobel peace, peace prize before he had done anything. Like it was kind of like that kind of thing where you can see the potential. You can see why people felt the urge to name him that, but it was just like too soon. I think even he would say that like in both positions. I think even Obama was a bit surprised by it, but just like the case where it's just like, we haven't gotten where we wanted to get yet. So this is maybe hardware isn't quite the thing yet. And he had accepted and he was a little bit, sound a little bit sheepish in doing so, but it is a, a question where, you know, it, it does, 
Yeah, and I and I think Han will be the guy who says that. You know, he hasn't achieved what he wanted to achieve yet. And uh, but I think it's something for fans to keep in mind too, in terms of just maintaining high standards. That uh, you know, even though he has knocked off the postseason uh, item on the checklist and and winning season, that you know he still has to do it over 162 games, and he still has to do it uh, you know in a non-compromised season where you know it's a uh, you know all teams are going for it, and it's a, a minimal or at least a reduced postseason. Maybe this extended postseason is here to stay, but if it is a case where you know now seven teams are getting in instead of five or what it was before that you know maybe the standards are slipping a little bit but the standards for the White Sox being a postseason threat you know have to remain high and so I would hope that uh, these are not laurels to rest laurels to rest on and I don't think that Han will be doing so I agree I don't think he'll be doing so either he got the award because he signed Yasmani Grandal and Dallas Keiko. Rick Hahn had a good offseason last year, but he he does need to continue it because we have seen this before. He made some pretty big efforts in 2015 and 2016, and nothing came out of it. Nothing came to fruition for the White Sox other than uh, a lengthy rebuild. Uh, as far as executive of the year, I think it should have went to Eric Neander, the vice president and general manager for the Tampa Bay Rays, because... He has built a very good team. And not only has he built a very good team, they still have one of the top two farm systems along with A.J. Preller and the San Diego Padres. So that's I, I was a bit eye-opening for me, Jim, when I saw that Rick Hahn won the award. It's like, one I can think of two better executives that deserve the award, and one of them is going to the World Series. So good job, Sporty News and fellow yeah. GMs. Yeah, but I mentioned in, in in the post I wrote that uh, when Kenny Williams uh, should have won it in 2005, Mark Shapiro got it instead, so it made sense for Rick Honda win it after finishing behind the Indians. <laughs> oh, that's good. That is good. But Mark, I think it's as someone that has advocated for Rick Hahn's firing back in 2016, uh, I think right now at this situation, it's too soon. But let's say if the White Sox only went 82 games in a 162 game season in 2021, Jim, I think Mark's got. I think Mark makes an excellent point. Yeah, like this is a this is a critical off season for the White Sox front office. And and that's uh, the thing I mentioned in Renteria's firing was that you know that with the teams that went all out for veteran proven managers, the Phillies with Girardi, the Angels with Madden, when they disappointed the following seasons, the GMs lost their jobs and. I don't, you know, it's hard to count on Rick Hahn losing his job because of Jerry Reinsdorf's loyalty, but, <laughs> well, I, I just thought two things. One is that, you know, with uh, with the way the Bulls are enjoying a lot of good press for letting Karnasovas do his job and uh, cleaning house and, and hiring Billy Donovan and everything like that, that maybe that'll give Reinsdorf some ideas. And also, um, you know, with Hahn, you know, one of his talking points or one of the things he likes revisiting as this rebuild take shape or has taken shape and is, t- you know, moving to the next level is that, you know, he likes to say like, people didn't think we'd rebuild. People didn't think, think we'd trade with the Cubs. People didn't think that we would, uh, you know, sign, you know, X player. People didn't think we would fire Rick Renteria. All these things we didn't think, uh, fans didn't think we'd do, we have done. <laughs> It'd be funny if the, the, the coda on that is, uh, <laughs> people didn't think we'd fire the general manager. But <laughs> 
it it hasn't happened in my lifetime as a White Sox fan. Like the last general manager that was let go was what in nineteen ninety. Yeah, Larry Himes. Yeah, it's been. Yeah, Larry Himes was the last general manager to be fired, and Jerry Reinsdorf reasoning was a point B to point C. He did not feel confident that Larry Himes could take the White Sox from a good team to a championship contending team. And then Himes went across town and became the general manager for the Chicago Cubs. So that's the last time a White Sox GM has been fired. So if you were born after 1990 in your lifetime, Jerry Reinsdorf has not fired a general manager. So don't hold your breath. But Mark Sambor does raise a good point at the 2021 season is not successful for the Chicago White Sox. There is nowhere to hide anymore for Rick Hahn. But Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from John Collins. And John Collins is asking, any chance that Dave Wills will join Darren Jackson in the radio booth next season? Well, you know, it's funny with the Rays making the World Series and, you know, going back to 2005 with John Rooney, that, you know, the White Sox won the World Series. He had a great call to wrap it up. And that was the last call he made with the White Sox because he joined the St. Louis Cardinals after that, went home to Missouri, got his dream job calling Cardinals games. And that was that. And, you know, and so it would be kind of funny if uh, Dave Wills, who is a uh, Chicagoland native and a, and a White Sox fan and did the pregame show uh, during the John Rooney era, if uh, he won, you know, if the Tampa Bay Rays won the World Series and he called that World Series a win and then he went to his hometown team, uh, that would be uh, kind of funny. But, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, I, I guess with radio jobs, it's hard because I think there is more um, flexibility or, or flux with radio jobs than there is with TV jobs. I think with TV jobs, you know, they're the voice, but they're also the face of White Sox broadcasts. With with radio broadcasts, they're just the voice. And, you know, in some cases, the voice is so distinct that they'll never go anywhere. Like the Cubs with Pat Hughes and the Indians with Tom Hamilton. Brewers the, with Bob Uecker. Yep, and, and Rangers with the, uh, Eric Nadell. You know, just like they have these voices that are voices. But I think there are a lot of other cases where they're just... You know, they go through some, they're still trying to find their guy uh, for their big moments and uh, their, their, their voice of the summer. And, you know, with, with Andy Mazur, I think, you know, <laughs> unfortunately he, you know, he took over the job in a couple of tough circumstances. One, you know, after the death of Ed Farmer and two, you know, during the season where they couldn't travel with the team. So it's hard for anybody to judge a new broadcaster, I think, for this kind of work. <laughs> Just it's, it's unfair and it'd be a shame if he never got to show uh, the job he could do, uh, you know, with the full season, with being able to travel and talk to players and be able to flesh out a broadcast with the way that broadcasters usually do, you know, with insight and color and, and firsthand observation that just wasn't there for him. Uh, the thing I wonder, though, with the White Sox and the radio future is that, you know, thinking about the White Sox and TV ratings going up, radio ratings going up. Last time they negotiated their deal, they're kind of at a low point. Um, you know, the the score uh, dumped them. <clears throat> they were rebuilding. They they were really uninteresting. They went to 890. That didn't work out. Uh, they had to uh, kind of scramble for a second home. WGN has been a great second home for them. But I wonder, you know, with White Sox now, their their tide is rising. Whether you know they think there's a better deal to be found with radio homes, just because they had negotiated their last one at such a low point that I wonder if they'll try to find 
uh, a better deal this time around because they'll be a hotter commodity. And so that's something where I can see maybe a radio booth shakeup just based on who's hired or who's employed by whom. Um, and in this case, you know, if they are able to find a better radio home, then maybe that's one case where I can't see a radio shakeup happening just because uh, employees are different or who's under contract with what or who they want to usher in a new era of White Sox radio. So that's one thing where I can see, you know, no offense to Andy Mazur, and it's completely independent of just the job he's doing. But uh, just if they want to find a new radio home because they have new negotiation powers that they didn't have before, maybe this is the time for that. I really wasn't thinking about as far as a a radio shuffle, as far as uh, announcers, because I thought Andy Mazur did a good job under the circumstances, as you mentioned, Jim. Um, But yeah, you never know. You never know. But anyways, John, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us for this week's P.O. Socks. A lot of questions, a lot of content this week. So I know this is a lengthier podcast, but again, it's an exciting week at Socks Machine. It's the 2021 off-season plan project. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully we gave you some, you know, more fodder to think about when you're going through as far as your plans Uh, to try to make the best plan possible. We cannot wait to see what you guys come up with as far as uh, creative trades and free agent targets and maybe even causing a stir of letting, you know, certain White Sox players go or trading, you know, top prospects away. We can't wait for the interaction and all the discussion in the comment section. And for those that have been a lurker for a long time and you want to test the waters and give it a shot, make sure to sign up at socksmachine.com as far as being a user with a username and password. And uh, you'll have the opportunity sometime after uh, Monday morning when the post goes up and you'll be able to submit your 2021 off-season plan project. But again, that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine podcast. A couple of marketing notes. You can still... Be a friend and supporter of SoxMachine.com. Sign up at Patreon.com slash SoxMachine where you can also get some awesome swag from us. And uh, do we have a coffee mug update, Jim? I think, let me check the stock remaining. I think we might be down to two. Okay, so it's a $10 tier and uh, it's it's a great coffee mug, especially if you remember Dan Johnson in 2012. And uh, his great cup of coffee. If you would like one, again, it's a $10 tier. So go there and uh, sign up today. Uh, as far as, we also have t-shirts that you could purchase at SocksMachine.com. They're $25 and includes shipping. We do also have some new swag items as well. So if you add a swag pack, we got Socks Machine magnets now and stickers and buttons. Uh, we got great stuff that you can uh, add to your shirt purchase. However, we are out of larges. We'll restock. But if you are a large, you missed your chance at this moment until we update our inventory and we get more in stock. But we do have plenty of shirts in other sizes. We have a lot of people that wear larges, Jim. Uh, <laughs> but those are the uh, those are the two marketing items. We're, we're low on coffee mugs because we have had so many people sign up to be a Patreon supporter and they purchased them on SocksMachine.com. So thank you, to so, thank you so much to those who did that. And as far as T-shirts, we're out of larges. But we do have small, mediums, extra larges, and double XL as well uh, that you can purchase on SocksMachine.com. Any other marketing news, Jim, that I'm forgetting about, possibly? Uh, no, but the World Series is Dodgers Rays. 
just like I predicted before the season, baby. Yeah, just the final out was just recorded while you're talking, so. Excellent. Peek behind the curtain. Heck yeah. Boom, I got a World Series prediction right. Yeah, they went chalk. They did. They went chalk. And not in a not in a very linear way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but yeah, we'll talk more about the Rays Dodgers World Series next week on the Sox Machine podcast on how that series is progressing. But again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. If you're new to the podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.